Canada just announced that it's raising its annual immigration targets such that by 2025, we can have 500,000 new people coming into the country, up from about 400,000 last year. And Immigration Minister Sean Fraser said Canada is going to look for people who can fill the jobs that are vacant in this country. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Mikhail Skudarud, a professor of economics at the University of Waterloo who studies the labor market. If you woke up one day surprised to hear that instead of talking about really high unemployment rates, which were at like 12% earlier in the pandemic, and were instead listening to an economist talk about the labor shortage all across Canada, you're not alone. Scooteroo told me that the labor shortage happened suddenly for reasons that are still not totally understood. We talked about how immigration is going to affect the labor shortage. The conversation is edited for clarity and brevity. Hi, Mikal. Thanks for coming on Down to Business. Thanks for having me. So the federal government announced its immigration targets this week, which are going to quickly rise to about 500,000 per year by 2025. I think there are around 400,000 or so now. And I saw that you wrote on Twitter that this is the highest level in six decades. Yeah, so just in terms of the numbers, in some ways, it's actually more impressive than the absolute levels of immigrants because the population is growing. So we kind of expect that every year the total number of immigrants that are entering Canada and that the Canadian economy can kind of absorb is going to increase. But even if you measure the new immigrants as a percentage of the existing population, that is going to reach levels that we haven't seen at least six to seven decades. Wow. So that's going to reach about 1.2% of the population, which is phenomenal. And so the reality is, is, you know, when we ask questions about what will the impact of this immigration be on the economy, it's kind of hard to know just because not only is this, you know, exceptional for Canada, but this is exceptional internationally. I mean, now we're at levels that no immigrant receiving country in the world has immigration rates at at this level. So it's an interesting time. It's remarkable, I guess, is what you're saying. It's exceptional. Canada is is really an outlier on this front. This truly is an immigrant receiving country. You know, it's somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of Canadians are immigrants. If you also include Canadians whose parents were born elsewhere, so they're first or second generation, then you're getting close to half of all Canadians. I mean, somewhere between 40 and 50% of all Canadians. And that number is increasing. This, this really is increasingly becoming a, a country of uh, immigration and immigrants. One of the things that you did, which I thought was interesting, was you asked, I wonder what the impact of this is going to be on GDP. And you showed two charts, one of immigration levels in Canada, which have been going up, I want to say, since the 1960s. And another, where you looked at the GDP line, which has been up and down, kind of appears to my eye, very little, if any, connection between GDP Mm. and immigration. Yeah. So the the really important point I I try to make in that that chart is, you know, you hear a lot of rhetoric about if we increase immigration, it will, you know, increase either they say, you know, the size of the economy or economic growth. Those are two different things. But either way, it's not quite clear what they're saying when they use that rhetoric. So increasing immigration, adding more people to a population will unambiguously increase the total size of the economy. GDP necessarily will go up. The more people you add, the more GDP is going to go up. But it's not clear that that's the objective we should care about. I mean, India and Brazil, they have higher GDP than Canada, but I don't think that's what we're striving for. 
what matters is sort of you take the total economic pie and you divide it between all the people. What's the size of the average slice? Right. And when you add more immigrants, does that average slice get bigger or smaller? And that is a much, much harder question. And the overwhelming kind of view among economists who study this in Canada specifically, looking at the Canadian experience, is that it probably does almost nothing. And I think that's the chart that you were alluding to, that when you look at changes in immigration rates and GDP per capita, it's really hard to see either effect, either positive or negative. It just seems completely unrelated. Yeah, that's really interesting. So let's go to Sean Fraser, the federal minister who made this announcement earlier this week. He did sort of frame it as we're going to be nimble about picking our immigrants. We're going to allow people in who have the skills that are going to be in demand in Canada. And this is a quote. He said, like, specifically, the workers who are going to help release pressures on our healthcare system, build more homes for Canadians. Is there any evidence that we can accurately predict what skills are going to be in demand and get people over here have those skills? This is sort of gets right at the crux of what the fundamental issue is for labor economists when they think about what optimal immigration policy is. And in particular, what we think is about and what we think matters most for the impact of immigration on the economy is not whether the immigration rate is 1% or 1.1% or 1.2%. What really matters is the composition of the immigrants. And so there's two broad approaches to immigrant selection. On the one hand, you could say, let's try to figure out where the existing job vacancies are, where those labor that labor demand is and which occupations they're in. And let's prioritize immigrant applicants that have work experience in those occupations. The alternative is to say, well, it's really hard to predict what the labor demand will be. And there's a lot of lags. So by the time the immigrants get here, the whole economy can have changed, could have gone into a recession. Let's not try to predict this. Let's just say, let's get the highest skill immigrants we can get. And there's been a back and forth for decades in Canada about the right approach. And I think economists increasingly have discovered what the best approach is. Okay, I'll bite on that. What's the feeling there? Yeah, so I mean, if you look at the late 1990s into the early 2000 experience in Canada, what Canada did is it really tried to target workers in the ICT sector, information and communications technology workers, and increase the numbers by huge amounts of these software engineers. But this was the tech boom right before the tech boom, like late 90s, those immigrants increased. Then we had this bust, the dot-com bust in about 2002. Nortel went belly up and a lot of other high-tech companies in Canada went belly up. And so we found ourselves in this precarious situation that we had large numbers of new immigrants who had been screened, selected for these types of jobs. And now all of a sudden, all these jobs are gone. And when we go back in the data and look at the experience of those immigrants, the fact is there were quite significant scarring effects. So those immigrants really struggled to get back into the labor market. There were sort of permanently or very long-term effects on those immigrants and their earnings. Sorry. So just trying to understand what it is you're saying, what was the upshot of the data that you're telling me that just because we bring someone into the country for a job that's in demand now does not say anything about their medium term to long term future here? That's absolutely it. In the in the longer term, it's really hard to predict with any accuracy what the labor demand is going to be in any occupation. I see. Uh, the, the government does try to do this, but here's the really interesting part to this, I think. We, we don't question ourselves enough about this. 
Where do we think that the labor demand comes from? What determines in a country what jobs sort of need to be done? If you travel around countries, what you see is that the jobs are being done are done very differently, and sometimes they're just completely different jobs. If I want to get my car washed in Florida, I go into a car wash and there's five human beings that come out with rags and clean it by hand. If I go to a car wash in Canada, it's a machine that does it. There's a reason for that. The jobs that are being done are driven in large part by the labor supply that's there. You know, if you go to California and look at how or grapes are, are picked in the wine industry, they're picked by hand. If you go to Australia, where farm workers are relatively scarce because there's no kind of porous border, then it's the pick of grapes is done by machines. Right. Uh, if you go to Norway, there's almost no fast food because minimum wages are far too high to make fast food restaurants profitable. So the point is the labor supply largely drives the labor demand and the jobs. So if you want a high skill economy, just focus on high-skill immigrants, regardless of their occupation. If you want a low-skill economy, then try to fill those low-skill jobs with workers. It's a fascinating idea. So <laughs> looking at Canada, somewhat out of the blue, at least for me, we're facing the most acute labor shortage I can remember. You can tell me if we've seen this before. And it's broad. It's cutting across sectors. So one takeaway from what you're saying could be that the skill sets of the immigrants coming into Canada are somewhat unimportant. We need everything. Mm. So, you know, your first point of whether labor markets are tighter now than they've ever been, we don't yeah. know that because we, we don't have comparable data actually even before 2015. The data we use now has wow. only been collected since 2015. And the problem is measuring job vacancies. We used to measure it by literally taking rulers and it's just stats can they had people that were measuring column inches in newspaper classified sections. <laughs> we don't do that anymore for good reasons. Right? <laughs> Job ads don't appear in newspapers, they appear on the internet. So the whole technology has changed. And so we just don't have consistent data. Now, at least since 2015, what has happened is we had very gradual increasing upward trend in, in labor market tightness. That completely changed in the spring of 2021, where it just completely exploded. As the economy started to open up from all these COVID restrictions, labor market tightness just reached levels that are unprecedented. So now we have roughly one job vacancy for every job seeker in Canada. That has not happened in the data, at least, that we have before. So the question is, why is that happening? Well, people want to always talk about the impact of the aging population. It has not really almost nothing to do with that. As I said, this was a sudden explosion in the spring of 2021. So it has something very clearly to do with the COVID pandemic and how it impacted the economy in a very significant way. And so then the question for the government becomes, well, how do we best respond to all this labor market tightness? I want to back up for a second. You said two things there. You said, like, people always talk about the aging population, but this connected to the COVID pandemic. I have heard an explanation, which is just that in 2020, there were people at or near or past retirement age. And so when everyone stayed at home in the initial stage of the pandemic, more of those people did not return to work ever. They said, wait, I like retirement. I'm going to continue doing this. There are other explanations <laughs> that, that are out there. 
it sounds like a great explanation. Stories sometimes go ahead of the evidence, and in this case, it does. <laughs> this is actually one of those things that's really easy to examine. Is you just go into the labor force survey and see what are the labor force participation rates of people that are age fifty-five to sixty-four, or even sixty-five plus, and the reality is they're higher than they've ever been. So, <laughs> like, huh. they clearly have not dropped. There is no evidence of that in Canada. If you look at the core age population, 25 to 54 in Canada, employment rates are at a historic high. Here we actually have data going back three decades. They've never been higher, those employment rates. So those stories just, they're nice stories. They sound right, but they're not right. They just don't hold up in the data. Okay. So I've seen you say that it's not about a supply of workers. It's just that something happened in 2020 that created exceptional demand. And now there's too much Mm -hmm. demand and not enough supply. Is there a theory for what happened? Mm. I mean, economists are slow in understanding these kinds of phenomena. We're going to be looking backwards in the rear mirror, you know, for years and years and years trying to understand this episode. But there is no question in the data, when we measure labor market tightness, what we're measuring is how many vacancies, job vacancies are there per job seeker. And all of the increasing numbers in that ratio are in the vacancies, not in the number of people that are working. It's a huge explosion in the number of job vacancies. So it's hard to believe it doesn't have anything to do with the amount of government support that was put into the economy during the pandemic. That is not a criticism of this support, but it was huge amounts of money. Mm. You know, like there was $100 billion, more than $100 billion put in in wage subsidies to mostly small businesses in Canada. What happened was business failure rates actually fell during the pandemic relative to what they would normally be. Even in the absence of a pandemic, there were low, fewer business failures. And the other thing that, of course, happened is once you start opening up, people have savings because they haven't been spending and there's massive pent up demand. I know I felt it. Soon as I felt comfortable going to a restaurant, I was like, let's go big here. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I think a lot of people felt like that. And, And so all of a sudden, you get this massive increase in the demand side of the economy. It leads to labor demand that we haven't seen before. There has been some reallocation of restaurant workers to more professional jobs, but now those restaurants are opening up and they need all these workers. So now you get lots of labor shortages. It really is happening on the demand side of the economy. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. It's interesting. It all feels very fuzzy to me, I must confess, just so that I put my skepticism on the table. But let's go back to immigration for a second. You know, immigration slowed down a bit during the pandemic years or in, say, 2020, 2021. What happened this week is we're ratcheting back up. How will this affect our labor shortage? So it it could be the right policy to address labor shortages. I mean, it's certainly the right way to go. If you really want to address these labor shortages, then increasing labor supply is, is, I mean, it's a no-brainer in some sense. I mean, it does beg the question, if your target is 460,000, why stop there? Why (laughs) why not make it 500? Why, Why not make it a million? Is it really just a capacity of the administration to process that many immigrants? Is that really, well, why not just put more administrative capacity in then? I think those questions are there. The problem is, of course, yep, increasing the supply is that it's going to address labor shortages. It probably helps with inflationary pressures as well. 
But then you're left with the question, well, what about economic growth? I thought part of the whole point was here not just to deplete wages and and put downward pressure on wages and labor markets. I thought it was about increasing economic growth. And it's hard to to reconcile those two objectives. You can't really achieve both of those things simultaneously. And tell me why that is. Well, because as I said, you know, the, the measure of economic growth is the change over time in GDP per capita. In fact, it's more complicated than that. Think about maybe the analogy here is the measure of economic growth that matters to economists is GDP per capita. And so the question is, well, how do you get more economic growth? What you need to do is not only increase GDP per capita, that's kind of like the speed of the car. You need to accelerate the growth. That's what economic growth is. So it's like the acceleration of the car, the speed, the growth rate of GDP per capita needs to increase. And that's a lot harder. And so how do you do that? Well, you know, GDP, two thirds of that roughly is people's earnings. So you need to increase people's earnings. And if you want to raise average earnings in the population, the only way to do that is add people whose earnings are higher than the existing average. <laughs> you know, and so you need these high skilled immigrants that have very high earnings. That's how you raise GDP per capita. And so if the objective is just to flood labor markets with whatever these low these labor shortages are, then that, of course, puts downward pressure on wages. It's just increasing the labor supply in these markets. It's really good for employers and business profits, but it doesn't do a whole lot to earnings. And it doesn't do a whole lot for improving GDP per capita. Because you're, you're adding people that, in, in essence, aren't that productive. That, you know, like you're not forcing firms to be competitive. You're not forcing firms to use technology, new technologies to increase the productivity of their workers. You're saying to firms, okay, you don't need to be innovative or productive here. We're just going to supply you with more and more workers so you can keep their wages down. They'll be desperate and be willing to work for anything. Right. And so that's the issue. Right. But I want to stop for a minute because we're talking a lot about inflation, which, as everyone knows, is very high right now, 7% or so in Canada. You're talking about flooding the market will keep wage inflation down. But my understanding is really that wage inflation is a very small part of the inflation that we're seeing right now. That's a great point. And I don't think anybody, including any of the analysts at the Bank of Canada, would disagree with that. Okay. I think there's no question that inflationary pressures in Canada have not been driven up to this point by wage growth. But that is not the concern of the Bank of Canada. The worry is that as nominal wages are adjusted in unionized environments, this happens in a very sluggish way because contracts need to expire. And then those negotiators need to go back to the bargaining table and negotiate new collective bargaining agreements, which means renegotiating nominal wage increases. So that's all going to happen very slowly. And when they negotiate those increases, they'll be looking retrospectively back at what price increases have been and saying, you know, we've fallen behind by 8% in our wages because of the increase in CPI. You've got to give us more than 8%. So we're at least better off than we're ahead of the game. We get real wage gains. So that's the worry is that what we're going to see is that the nominal wage growth will pass the increases in prices. What happens if that happens? Well, now employers are going to have a different reason to increase prices. Businesses are going to be increasing prices because 
not that their de- the demand for their products is so high, but because their labor costs are increasing so quickly. And so now you've got what's called a wage price spiral. So there's a bit of miscommunication out there. People are saying, well, why should you punish workers because they're not responsible for price inflation? Absolutely true. The worry is if you don't keep wages down right now, that that will drive future price inflation. Let's talk for a second about a different aspect of the immigration and the economic impacts of it, which is it's often framed as you have a baby boomer generation that's retiring and we're going to need immigration in order to keep our pensions solvent. And we were talking before you were sort of saying, if you're going 400,000, why not make it a million? How closely can this all be calibrated, I guess, is the other question I would ask. This is, these are tough questions, but I think yeah. we know the answer to these, right? So there's no question that immigration helps to address these labor shortages that are the result of an aging population. So even before the pandemic, we were seeing very slow sort of glacial moving increases in labor market tightness. Of course, they were happening before the pandemic. They didn't have anything to do with the pandemic. But those were very moderate increases. And they're, of course, something governments need to think about. And immigration is one policy lever to address those. It's one, but it's only one. The question is, how blunt or sharp of a policy instrument is that? And the answer to that is when you look at the data, at least in Canada, it's a, it's a remarkably blunt policy instrument. And the reason is, is what a you know well-known demographer at the McMaster University said many years ago. His name was Byron Spencer. And he said, the reason why immigration doesn't do much to address an aging population is that we don't restrict immigration to 15-year-old orphans. <laughs> you know, immigrants come and they tend to be older and they also tend to bring the family with them. So not immediately, they apply for family class immigration after they settle. And that's completely understandable. I mean, I'm an immigrant myself. I want my parents here too. <laughs> I, I mean, that's completely understandable. But the, the reality is when you look at the data, immigration does remarkably little to change the age distribution of the population to make the population younger. That's an interesting caveat to this immigration. We started off the conversation by saying this is sort of unprecedented, you know, the level of immigration in Canada. And we didn't say it, but I think it's also true that public support, as indicated in polls in Canada for immigration, is also sort of exceptionally high compared to other places. Do you want to share any sort of thoughts and what you think some of the pressure points are going to be with this? Yeah, that, that's the million dollar question. That's the question that yeah. really matters. As an immigrant myself, And as somebody who is on a personal level, very pro-immigration and values, I came from a country, Scandinavia, that was very homogeneous, I think very dull. It doesn't have all the diversity and the vibrance of cities like Toronto. I mean, I think, you know, the, the public support for immigration in Canada is not really that difficult to understand. It's overwhelmingly reflects the success of our immigration system and the immigrant selection system. That Canadian immigrants, despite challenges, have been historically quite successful at integrating into labor markets. I think that's particularly true in recent decades, where we've emphasized increasingly trying to get these high human capital immigrants that bring innovation and talent and 
And so I think that's the success. So the question then becomes, well, as we reach these higher and higher levels, is there a risk that when we look at the earnings of new immigrants in the future, that we're going to return to some of those challenges we saw in the 80s and 90s? And I think that is very closely tied to public support. If you start seeing headlines that are not about increasing talent, but about poverty rates of new immigrants, which was what the headlines were about in the 1990s, then I worry. I worry that some of that support for immigration will be compromised. I think that's ultimately what the risk is in these numbers. Yeah. I had another economist on here. This would have been more than a year ago. And we were talking about immigration. And he said the prediction was that right now, Canada can sort of take its pick. There are plenty of people who want to come into this country who are talented, who have PhDs or who have trade certificates or whatever the case may be. And he said, I think in about five, 10 years time, there's going to be more countries that are realizing that that's a huge opportunity and there's going to be a battle for those immigrants. Do you have any predictions about that? I, I, you know, I think it's the right point. I think, as I said before, I think the margin on where the potential for immigration to boost countries' economic living standards is not so much on those overall immigration rates, the levels of immigration. It's about the composition and try being the best at attracting the top talent. I think Canada has struggled. I think there's potential for improvement. I worry with the current government, they're going down the wrong path and not going to improve that. But in terms of the bigger picture, I think sometimes we overstate the risk of Canada not being competitive in that global war for talent. I think we underestimate, and we can talk to immigrants and realize this pretty quickly, we underestimate just how attractive a country, uh, Canada, is to new immigrants, how attractive our public health care system is, how attractive our public education system is. These systems are huge influencers in who chooses to come to Canada. And Canada really is in a class of its own on these fronts. Well, thank you so much for coming on Down to Business to talk to me about these issues. I really appreciate it, Mikhail. Thanks for having me. Anytime. That was Mikhail Skuterud, professor of economics at the University of Waterloo. Thank you for listening to another episode of Down to Business. Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music on this show. He designed the logo and he produced this episode. Noella Ovid, Pamela Heaven, and Victoria Wells provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman. Down to Business will return next week. Until then, you can find all the news you need about Canada's economy at financialpost.com.